0: The Leaving Weakness Podcast. It's kids are soft. You like discipline. But well, I've got news for you. You're not gonna have your mummies run behind you anymore. by people. Oh no! It's time now to turn this mush into muscles. Guys, welcome back to the Leaving Weakness Podcast. I'm your host Scott, and this week we're going to talk about a lot of things dealing with sleep, particularly uh, sleep deprivation and how it affects food desires in the brain, as well as maybe some habits that we can change to help us get better sleep in our lives. So I was doing some digging around, and I kind of came across this study about how sleep deprivation affects, uh, affects the desire for certain foods in our brain, and. I found out that some rather fiendish changes actually unfold in our brains and our body when um, we're deprived of sleep. Now, the onset of irrational thought processes that occur from sleep deprivation actually end up setting us up on this path towards really overeating and you know, ultimately weight gain. So the way that this works is when we're awake for longer – We do need more energy, but really not that much. Sleep is a surprisingly active process and our brains and bodies are working pretty fucking hard. Um, Despite that, when we're deprived of sleep, we actually tend to overeat more than two to three times the amount of calories that we actually needed. And you see, this actually happens because um, sleep affects two appetite controlling hormones which are leptin and ghrelin. I think some people call it grelin. however you pronounce it. So leptin, what it actually will do is it will signal your brain that you've had enough to eat. So when your leptin levels are high, your appetite is reduced. Now, ghrelin is the hunger hormone, and it literally does the opposite of leptin. So ghrelin, if you guys that are out there have ever tried MK 677, um, One of the ways that it actually works is it stimulates ghrelin in the stomach, which triggers all these hormone uh, growth hormone receptors. And that's one of the reasons why when you use MK677, you get hungry as shit because MK literally spikes ghrelin levels. So when your ghrelin levels are high, you ultimately won't feel satisfied by the food that you've ate, which makes you desire more food. So... You know, like I said, leptin is kind of the appetite uh, suppressing hormone when the levels are high, and ghrelin is literally the hunger hormone level. Uh, now, experiments have shown that the way that these two hormones are supposed to actually work in the body are completely imbalanced when we are sleep deprived. What happens is leptin goes up or leptin goes down, which causes an increased appetite. And then the ghrelin levels shoot way up, which ultimately results in us being hungry as shit, and we get this really bad feeling of insatiation. Now, not having enough sleep doesn't only affect how much we eat, but also what we eat. Now, this particular study that I found, and I'll link it in the show notes, um, had some outstanding information and charts And the guy who carried out, Professor Matthew Walker, he actually showed that participants were way more likely to crave calorie-dense foods, uh, basically junk foods, stuff that was sugary, salty, greasy, carb-heavy fucking foods whenever they were sleep-deprived. So the researchers that conducted that study actually pointed to an explanation that's rooted in human evolution, right? So what they're basically pointing at is that animals rarely deprive themselves of sleep unless they are starving and need to stay awake to forage for food. So when we don't have sufficient sleep, from an evolutionary perspective, our brain thinks that we we actually might be in some sort of state of starvation and it will increase our food cravings to drive us to eat more. And, you know, I can tell you from my own experience, whenever I have shitty disruptive sleep patterns and stuff, you know, I kind of go off the rails a little bit on my diet and I tend to have a problem with, you know, getting up in the middle of the night and, you know, raiding the fridge for a snack I probably shouldn't be fucking eating. Now, guys, I think it's very important to mention that one of the best things you can do to put your body in an optimal sleep state is you know, be on a consistent schedule because we have something called a circadian rhythm and that is the regulation of sleep um, is processed by this homeostatic physiology of this thing called the circadian rhythm and that is like basically the sleep-wake cycle and it's a 24-hour internal clock that's in our brain that regulates cycles of alertness and sleepiness by responding to things in our environment like light changes um, and, you know, it's affected by a lot of things. I mean, even the earth's rotation around its axis is a, is one of those things that affect it. But, you know, getting on a consistent schedule can help with that um, because you're giving your body's circadian rhythm, you know, a, a, you're, you're preventing guesswork for it. And guesswork a lot of times for our body can, you know, put stress on it and make it do things that we don't want it to do. So waking up at a specific time, you know, with an alarm clock, going to bed at a specific time, having a ritual, a pre-bed ritual of certain things you do to kind of get your mind prepared for what it's about to do, which is sleep. Um, Having, you know, certain meal times, cutting off certain stimulants at certain times of the day. These are all factors that can basically put you in a consistent sleep schedule And helps your body to adapt to that. So it's in an optimal state to do what it needs to do. Now, it's interesting because whenever I decided to do this podcast, I did a lot of research on certain things that I thought were just kind of givens like, well, are carbs carbs must be bad before bed, or you shouldn't eat this much time. You should allow this much time uh, between your last meal and sleep, you know, like the three hour rule and all that stuff. But I kind of found that, um, the Dunning-Kruger effect kind of takes play here with this. Now, if you don't know what the Dunning-Kruger effect is, it's basically this cognitive bias in which people wrongly overestimate their knowledge or ability about a specific area. And the more that you start learning about it, the more questions you have and the more you realize it's not just black and white. There's a lot to it. Um, And maybe you were wrong about certain areas of things. And I found that that is particularly true when it comes to a lot of things involved with sleep. Now, whenever I was doing the research to do this podcast, um, (laughs) there's a lot of things that I just kind of took as a fact, you know, and when I started looking up, well, why is that? Why is that assumption true? What What's the science behind that? I mean, it, it kind of got kind of difficult. And I think the Dunning-Kruger effect kind of comes to play here. And the Dunning-Kruger effect is basically where you assume that you know something, you have a specific bias towards a certain fact or, or something like that. And the more that you start to educate yourself about it, the more you realize that, hey, there's a lot more to this. And I wasn't as smart on this as what I thought. I I wasn't quite as knowledgeable once I started uh, uncovering more facts. And then you start to realize, well, it's not just black and white. There's a lot of grays to it. So, for example, um, you know, food before bed. I always have heard my whole life, well, you want to not eat three hours before bed. And I was going to put that in here, and I basically started researching that because I was like, well, why the hell is that? Why three hours? Who who made up this magic number? And oddly enough, there's a lot of data that backs up both sides of that argument, whether it's good and whether it's bad. But I will tell you that one particular thing that I do believe – now, this isn't for all people, but one maybe important reason why you would want to avoid – eating before bed is if you are one of the 20% of people in the United States that suffer from a disease called uh, GERD, which is basically a type of acid reflux disease. And what what this basically does is it happens when your gastric contents, like your stomach acid, splash back up into your throat and give you like this insane heartburn where you're vomiting uh, stomach acid back up in your throat. And the symptoms of GERD include heartburn, difficulty swallowing, a lump in the throat, dental erosions, chronic cough, and laryngitis. And if you are one of the people that have any of those symptoms, I mean, you, you might want to avoid eating a couple hours before laying down to go to sleep at night. And laying down um, makes it a lot easier to regurgitate acid if you have some problems in your uh, stomach. Therefore, you know, if you've got acid reflux and shit like that, it's a good idea to avoid eating two or three hours before laying down to bed. Now, the problem with that is if you do have food in your stomach or anything acidic, like you ate a bunch of like spaghetti or some shit with acidic stuff like tomatoes or spicy foods or things like that. And you, I mean, you could very well wake up in the middle of the night with bitch and heartburn and it'd be hard to sleep and you're up half the night eating rollades or Tums or something like that. And I mean, even chocolate is acidic and can cause um, acid reflux for some people. So that is one reason why I think you would particularly want to avoid eating a couple hours before bed. And I was looking at studies about, well, why three hours before bed in general? <laughs> it's funny because I was seeing some uh, sites that were citing studies saying, well, it's good to eat before bed because, you know, you're getting all this insulin in your body and it makes you sleepy and it'll make you stay asleep. And then I found other stuff that said you don't want to eat before bed because uh, the sugar will keep you up longer. And so, again, Dunning-Kruger effect, there's a lot of data that backs up both sides of the argument, but I do stand behind if you have digestive issues or you want to make sure your digestive, um, health is in an optimal state, I would suggest eat, you know, two hours, two or three hours before bed, don't eat anything. Now there's a lot of shit about what to eat, what not to eat before bed, you know, and I'm specifically focusing on sleep quality and not waking up in the middle of the night and not eating garbage because of it, you know, and having a good consistent sleep schedule for optimal, both physical, emotional, and mental health here. Now, <laughs> one thing that I, I was researching is, you know, you know what what should you eat before bed, you know, or is it better to eat this kind of food? Is it better to eat that kind of food? And One thing that I found, and I've got a whole bunch of studies here that I'm pulling up, is certainly that the type of carbohydrates that you eat before bed could play a role in that. So I've got this article that I pulled up off of a website called Livestrong.com, and it looks like it was written uh, back in January of 2021 by Anthea Levi. And she the, the title of the article literally is, "How bad is it really to eat Carbs before bed?" Question mark. Now, she goes into this uh, area of this article where she's talking about carbohydrate digestion of 101, and how the body uses glycogen and things like that for burning energy. And I'm going to quote an excerpt out of this article for you all. It says, um, let's review what carbohydrates are and how they function in the body. So fruits and vegetables and beans and whole grain, they all contain carbohydrates. The natural sugar in dairy and lactose is also a carb, and so the starches and sweeteners that make up foods like bread, cookies, pasta, candy, and soda. And they go on to say that the body breaks carbohydrates down into glucose, which is a simple sugar, When glucose gets absorbed from the GI tract, it's released into the bloodstream, and insulin helps shuttle it into cells where it can act as a fuel source. When there's too much glucose, cells store the sugar either as glycogen in the muscles or liver, or as fat instead of burning it for energy. Now, some people think that the more carbohydrates we eat, the more energy we store, and potentially the more weight that we gain. Because the body requires less energy overnight, it seems fitting that the sugars we eat from the late-night carbs are more likely to be stored than burned. But there's more to it than just that. So, and this is where the point is made, that they go on to say that not all carbs are created equal. Different types of carbs affect the body in different ways. Uh, and then they have a person here uh Named Marissa Mishulum, um, who's some sort of RD, say that, quote, Fast carbs include sugary foods such as soda, candy, and white bread, which are fiberless. This means they get digested quickly and leave us hungry soon thereafter. Okay, end quote. They can also cause serious blood sugar spikes. And they go on to say that slow carbs like beans, quinoa, and sweet potatoes are filled with fiber and provide us with a steady source of energy slowly, meaning we are full for longer, and skip the, high, the energy highs and lows of the fast carbs. Understanding these differences becomes more important when we choose our late night snacks. Now, you skip down on the article, and they specifically address how this plays into sleep quality. So, to quote this article again, overdoing it on refined carbs at any time of the day can compromise your sleep. A higher intake of added sugars, in general, was associated with poor sleep quality in women per a February 2020 study in the Journal of the American Heart Association. Now, a sugar bomb before bed can also disrupt sleep by causing digestive issues, but you don't have to ban all carbohydrates come nighttime for better sleep. In fact, eating complex or slow carbs at bedtime may actually be helpful for logging your shut-eye. Uh, carbohydrates help increase serotonin production, which is a precursor to our sleepy hormone melatonin, and can actually help reduce the stress hormone cortisol. This can help us relax and get a more, in a more restful mindset. So, eating carbs before bed can also help us feel satiated when we aren't tossing and turning due to hunger. If you have trouble sleeping, try a small snack with some complex carbohydrates and pair it with a protein or fat to help stabilize your blood sugar levels. A slice of something like a whole wheat toast with a small amount of peanut butter would be an optimal choice. So, again, I will link that article Uh, in the show notes for this podcast. I I felt like that was a pretty good representation of some certain things to eat. But another thing that I wanted to note in here was how certain plant-based foods can actually help you stay asleep for longer. Now, there's an article that I found uh, that is like the Edinburgh News, and the person brought up a good point in here. And Basically, what they get at is that certain nuts and seeds have a high magnesium content, which could be key in helping us certain individuals uh, sleep and keeping you asleep. And that's because they have something called GABA, uh, which is an amino acid that if your levels are low, it can cause your brain to have racing thoughts and a busy mind and for some people almost feel like they have anxiety but magnesium has GABA boosting properties meaning that eating some of the foods that have magnesium like nuts and seeds uh, uh, as your nighttime snack if you're hungry or just eating them in general before bed could be what you need to maintain a good night's sleep so you know there's things like pumpkin seeds um cashews and certain dry roasted nuts and almonds and things like that that have, you know, kind of fit perfectly into this. Or you could just take a GABA supplement if you don't like fucking eating nuts and shit. Or if you have a nut allergy. I mean, GABA supplements are easy to find shit. You can get them off Amazon. Um, so that is another thing that you can do to help with that. Now, another thing that's always been a big deal for me is The temperature of the environment that I'm sleeping in. I tend to have a much better night's sleep if my environment is cooler because if it's hot, you know, man, I'm tossing and turning, I'm throwing sheets off me, I'm sweating, turning the fan on high, and it's just not a good situation. And I actually found this article, uh, by Monica Chinsami, which is a actual certified sleep specialist where she specifically talks about how body temperature changes, uh, Affect sleep patterns uh, during the day and the night. So I'm going to read an excerpt out of this. So the act of sleeping may seem simple, but a lot of physiological stuff goes on behind the scenes to prepare for it. Throughout a 24-hour period, the body's core temperature, which is linked to the circadian rhythm, shifts frequently. frequently regulated by a tiny P-shaped section of the brain called the hypothalamus, Body temperature changes from between 98.6 degrees and 100.4 degrees. So as you'll see from the chart, and they have a pretty cool chart that they've shown here, um, the temperature is its lowest around 6 a.m. and then peaks again around 7 p.m., then steadily declines as bedtime approaches. The cooling down process is what helps you feel drowsy before bed. Two kinds of temperature regulate the body. These are known as core temperature and shell temperature. Core temperature is managed by the brain is linked to internal systems where vital organs are located. And then you have the shell temperature, which is impacted by outside factors in the environment and is linked to tissue and muscles. Now, core temperature tends to fluctuate naturally, while shell temperature can contribute to changes in the core, either by cooling it down or making it feel warmer. Hot rooms, dense pillows, and heat-trapping mattresses are some of the most common reasons people experience sudden spikes in shell temperature. Even though temperatures can slightly differ between individuals, these two remain the same. Low temperatures prepare the body for better sleep. High temperatures prepare the body to wake up. So that you don't confuse the body, ensure that you have a cool room where, when it's time to snooze and amazing sleep will usually come your way. Very good article. I'll link it in the show notes. Now, I will say that throughout this article, you know, they had some studies and stuff that they had linked, you know, uh, to kind of back this up. And there were some, you know, basically there's a whole lot of studies that analyze the relationship between better sleep and environmental temperatures. I mean, there was even an in-depth study with the University of South Australia that basically linked warm body temperatures to insomnia and stuff. Um, and that study basically revealed that insomniacs generally have like a higher core body temperature that creates issues when it comes to time to wind down. And the lower temperatures um, is basically vital to help do sleep. But, you know, through mowing through these studies, I would say that it would be generally accepted that the temperatures in your environment try and be somewhere between 60 and 67, 68 degrees for the most ideal sleep. And again, um, if you can keep your thermostat around those temperatures, I mean, you're probably going to be getting in that just right feeling for optimal sleep and and comfort. And again, I will link that particular article uh, in the show notes for you guys. Now, the other big thing that I wanted to mention in here is avoiding certain stimulants, well, actually any stimulants before bed. And that would include things like caffeine and pre-workout and shit like that, uh, you know, coffee, whatever. But I mean, just think about pre-workout. I mean, the intent of a pre-workout supplement is to give you a boost of energy to help push you through a badass, tough exercise session. And that's the exact opposite of what you're going to want before bedtime. And that's why, uh, and you know, consider that pre-workouts, I mean, they Typically, contain some sort of energizing stimulants like caffeine, if not more outrageous shit like DMAA and stuff like that. And, you know, it always surprises me whenever I see bros that go to the gym at night, you know, when they get off of a shift or something like that. And they go to the gym, and they slam a wicked-ass pre-workout full of stimulants and shit, and then they go home, and they have all kinds of, like, sleep issues. That's why I suggest a non-stimulant version of a a pre-workout for people that work out at night. Save that shit for in the mornings, but, you know caffeine is a big one now typically you know you're going to get your caffeine from like something like your sodas or coffee and shit like that but it's the most commonly used stimulant around the world and personally it's my favorite drug um and for good reason but caffeine stimulates the central nervous system you know muscles and organs it enhances mental alertness reduces fatigue definitely improves uh exercise performance without a doubt but You have to keep in mind that this particular compound, caffeine, reaches peak concentrations around 45 minutes after consumptions, and the half-life of caffeine is actually about four and a half hours, which means half of the caffeine you consume will be eliminated from the body in four to five hours, but the other half is still going to be lingering around while it continues to be pushed out of your body. It's not just going to be completely out of your system in four and a half hours. And there's some scientific evidence that shows that caffeine can prolong the time it takes to fall asleep. I mean, this is not just bullshit. It re- will reduce total sleep time and worsen perceived sleep quality. And there are individual differences in caffeine metabolism for every person, I'm fully aware of that, and certain sensitivity levels, but it is generally recommended to avoid caffeine you know, at least six hours before bedtime, so... Keep that in mind, guys. Um, you also need to really look at the back panels of some of the supplements that you take, because caffeine can be found in some pretty surprising products. I've even seen certain multivitamins list caffeine in there. So uh, there's some other type of stimulant type things you might want to kind of avoid that might keep you up. You know, certain teas, things like that, um, green teas especially. Um, I think Yerba Mate might actually even have a small amount of caffeine in it. Cocoa, chocolates, things like that have caffeine in them. So if you're really trying to optimize your your sleep patterns here, those are all things that you need to really kind of look at. And the uh, free workouts, if you work out at night, really understand everything that's on the back panel of that, guys. Because a lot of supplement companies, they can use alternative names for things and still get away with it and you might be taking a wicked ass uh, stimulant and not even know it you know if you don't know what cineprin is you know i mean you need to know that that is a stimulant and it's appearing more and more on certain uh, pre-workout products so just keep that in mind Um, and you might also want to avoid stuff with beta alanine uh, because it's it's a type of amino acid and Basically, it's responsible for the tingly feeling that you get after you take a pre-workout. But that tingling, prickling, burning sensation in the face, neck, and hands, and other parts of the body, that shit lasts for like an hour to an hour and a half. And that, I know a lot of people that can't sleep once they have that stuff still lingering out in in their system. Because that definitely, that just that sensation of tingling and prickling, that can really impact your ability to fall asleep, I tell you, or stay asleep too. So now if you're looking for specific supplements to help you sleep better or have a optimal sleep quality, and that is kind of a loaded question because it really depends on what you're willing to take and what your goals are, but there's specifically some nootropic type compounds that I would absolutely suggest. Um, and I'm just going to go through a list of those. So L-tyrosine, Now, L-tyrosine is an amino acid that is produced by phenylalanine in your body. And it directly is involved in creating dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine in your brain and body. And it's the precursor to your body's main thyroid hormone also. And you know, as I mentioned earlier about gabin stuff and nuts, you get tyrosine from almonds and nuts and beans and things like that. Just a lot of times we don't get enough in our diet. Um, now, it this particular amino acid kind of hitchhikes on the back of amino acids like uh, tryptophan to cross the blood-brain barrier to enter your brain. Um, now... It plays a really big role in controlling the organs responsible for creating and regulating hormones in your body, including your adrenal glands, pituitary glands, and your thyroid. Sharpens your memory, has anti-anxiety qualities, it boosts your moods, and also protects your um, brain from neurotoxins. But a lot of people that utilize L-tyrosine, L- they feel like they get a, a, their brain has a better ability to focus. But because it kind of gets a lot of those uh, mood-stabilizing hormones in check, it allows you to have less anxiety and relax more at night. Um, so I, this is something I actually take constantly uh, every single day. Now, let's move to L-theanine. This naturally occurs in green tea. It's another amino acid. Um and it's primarily used as nootropic for anxiety, mood, focus, and enhanced learning abilities. Now, this easily crosses the blood-brain barrier. And it works really quickly to actually increase serotonin levels, which is the feel, one of the feel-good chemicals in your brain. Um, and it's kind of a relaxation uh, chemical as well. Now, it, a lot of people that use this... Um, what they do is they start it off at like 250 milligrams, um, and they can go all the way to 500 milligrams, but L-theanine does help you relax. It does help your brain kind of wind down and relax at night, so that is something I, I take also. Then you get to CME, um, which is also called methionine. It is a naturally occurring compound in the body, uh, and what it does is it helps the process of cellular division and repair, and helps with the generation of neurotransmitters like serotonin, uh, melatonin, and things like that, which is why it's considered such a potent nootropic. It's also used to boost like your mood, relieve depression, improve uh, energy, like a stable energy level throughout the day. Um, Some people even claim that it helps with symptoms of fibromyalgia, but Um, a lot of people that have like a sleep time stack will take a combination of things like GABA, methionine or SAMe, uh, and then also your L-theanine as well as a little bit of melatonin kind of to round out that sleep stack. And these are things that I take that I, once I started understanding nootropics, um, and started implementing them in my life, I saw drastic improvement guys, but I will tell you that our buds over at Amino Asylum has a really awesome um, amino blend that's called the Relaxation Blend that has, I'm pretty, pretty sure, all those things in it. So you can check that out. Uh, the link tree in the show notes has a link and a coupon code to Amino, uh, amino Asylum's website. Now, another uh, sleep supplement, if you want to call it that, that I just have to mention is something called DSIP or Delta Sleep Inducing Peptide. Um, now it is a neuropeptide uh, that was discovered by the Swiss, I think, in 1974. Um, and DSIP is uh, was actually found in various areas throughout the body, such as the hypothalamus and the pituitary glands. Now, what it does is it mainly aids in treating uh, sleeping disorders, but it's still being studied nearly 40 years after its discovery. So. Uh, you know, basically, there's there's five stages of sleep. Uh, you know, one, two, three, and four, and then finally REM sleep. Now, I think some of this has been updated by sleep specialists over the years, but we're going to keep it simple here and just abide by that concept. Still, now, stage four is where we hit deep sleep, and the brain starts to produce heavy output of delta waves. So, if someone tries to wake you in stage four, you're going to be disoriented and belligerent <laughs> whenever you're coming to. This is also the transition phase into the REM sleep um, or rapid eye movement sleep, which is the final stage uh, that produces the rapid eye movement and the intense dreams. Now, DSIP allows us to easily transition throughout the final stages so we can get into REM sleep, the deep sleep. Uh, now this is very important because most people suffering from sleep disorders struggle with immersing into stage 4 and REM. Now most uh, reports uh, of, of using this compound pronounced improve, had pr- really major improvement in their sleep quality um, because the compound basically allows you to fall asleep with these. Um, improvement in memory function throughout the day likely because the third and fourth stages of sleep is kind of where your brain begins to do the most repair work um, this is also critical when the brain sifts through our experienced memories from out the day and start to clean out the hard drive of all the fucking useless junk it doesn't need anymore decide what to keep and discard throughout the day so having the proper quality of sleep allows for healing and repair of our brain and you know i'm surprised that this peptide isn't more widely used um But surprisingly, um, DSIP is, I mean, it's traditionally obtained in like the lyphalized free dry disc in a small vial where you have to reconstitute it with bacteriostatic water. But it also will work as a nasal spray. Um, And I know our good friends over at um, Rats Army does have the vials. And I think it's either Amino Asylum or Noose Arms has the nasal spray version of it uh, for those who are afraid to pin. But just to kind of wrap this up, guys, a couple other things that I I feel like have really anecdotally helped me with better sleep quality is, you know, reading before bed instead of watching TV. Because with television, a lot of us have Netflix and Hulu and shit like that, and we'll get sucked into a show and keep fucking binging episode after episode, and it gets hard for us to quit. And, you know, a lot of the shit that we see on TV is really kind of stressful to the brain anymore. A lot of it's just fucking garbage. But, you know, actually reading a book actually kind of makes your eyes kind of tired and really kind of winds your brain down and relaxes it and prepares it. I know if I'm laying in bed and I'm reading a book, shit, man, I am I'm get real sleepy to where I have to put the book down because it really winds me down. But one of, I feel like one of the most important things that you can do is... Keep your fucking phone away from you when you're trying to go to sleep. You know, maybe even put it on a charger in a separate room. Get those fucking notifications off. Because if that motherfucker's beeping and squealing and all this stuff, you know, you're going to be fucking with it and answering it and things like that. And that's just not good. And I I feel like it's kind of unnatural (laughs) for humans to be so attached to their phones where they're like these symbiotic electronic leashes anyway. So there comes a point where it's healthy just to get away from the damn things. And definitely at nighttime when you're winding down is probably the best time to do that. So again, guys, whenever I was starting out doing the research with this, I ended up having more questions than answers. But, you know, I'm trying to point you in the ones that I feel like are the most valid of answers based off some research that I found. So again, if you want to support leavingweakness.com and the podcast, The link tree in the show notes has links to companies and resources that I do abide by as far as their quality. I do vouch for them, and we have coupon codes. The way that works is if you buy something from one of those companies, you use my coupon code. I do get a small commission on it. However, I will never write an article or suggest you guys buying a bogus fucking product that I myself wouldn't use or don't believe in. So, Um, Also, we'll have some of the links to some of the articles and studies that I mentioned in this podcast. Again, I appreciate you guys. Hopefully, this podcast helps you, and we'll talk to you all next time. Peace out.